Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Piper Wilder, founder and CEO of 60 Hertz. 60 Hertz is providing a computerized maintenance management software to the world of energy. This platform facilitates smart servicing of distributed energy resources and microgrids, and I see applications for this in the oil field operations, solar farms, modular geothermal, and potentially any energy production equipment with moving parts. So let's get Piper on the show now to talk through what maintenance software is, how it helps, and where it's going. Piper, thank you for joining me here today. If you would please share with me in the audience your background and a quick introduction to 60 Hertz. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be on your show. So uh, I started 60 Hertz in 2017 uh, because I saw a gap in how microgrids, particularly in remote parts of the Arctic, were being financed. I thought there was an opportunity to help bring the investment tax credit and leverage uh, public uh, finance, some grant funding in our state uh, toward the, the initial capital infrastructure cost of these million-dollar assets in remote parts of the Arctic. But pretty quickly on the way to that goal, discovered that we had a bigger first problem to solve, which was the maintenance and care of these assets long-term. And by maintenance, I mean things like changing oil in a diesel generator or repairing cabling connected to a solar array, uh, the balance of parts associated with even a small-scale wind turbine, that there really was an opportunity. Um, And so I didn't know what computerized maintenance management software was as I started 60 Hertz, but uh, quickly have learned. And uh, when I brought aboard my co-founder, Tanya James, as well as uh, our second co-founder, Whitney Gant, we thought there was a huge gap in the market for a maintenance app that would work in an offline location that would serve people that may not have had a tremendous amount of formal training or education about the asset that they were looking after. And what we wanted to bring to market would be an easy to use offline first mobile app and corresponding uh, cloud-based dashboard to look after maintenance. So that's what we've done. Uh, We're in our fifth year of operations with customers today all across the Arctic where we started, but also at the U.S. Department of Defense in sub-Saharan Africa, several oil field service companies, and also solar developers. So really excited about how our, our little startup has grown and the people that we get to work with in a variety of industries and sectors. That is so cool and exciting to hear that you're kind of all over the world. And it makes it just makes intuitive sense to me because when I think about software, for me, software is built out of necessity, either to gain efficiency in some type of modeling or computer programming or some type of tedious task you're performing, or it is to track progress of, say, say we talk about CRM software, and you're doing that so that you can see where you are in your relationships and on that path towards, towards an end goal. And it sounds very similar to exactly what you're doing with 60 Hertz. You're, you're basically giving that opportunity to understand and take care of equipment. Yeah, Joe, that's it. That's that's totally it. And in fact, um, you know, the, <laughs> uh, you make it sound so easy. But um, for 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 us at the beginning, it, it certainly wasn't. I'm happy to, to share that 
I am a, what's considered a non-technical founder, meaning I don't know how to write code. I'm not a software developer. Um, uh, uh, neither neither is Tanya, Tanya James, my co-founder. But we have had to learn a lot more about this. Um, but I think it really just gets at the entrepreneurial itch where you see a problem and you want to solve it, uh, wh- whether or not you're qualified to solve it. Um, but But we've learned a lot on the way. And to be honest, um, we're proud of coming at it from this background because our users are not always very technical either. And even in an oil field context where you have um, two on two off employees that that may have had, of course, their basic safety training, et cetera, but a fair number of jobs across the energy landscape, whether it's in traditional or in um, alternative energy, up and coming energy, that you're going to have the maintenance profession invites people that may be at a new phase in their career at entry level, wherein using a digital assist, an app like ours can help them achieve their full potential and demonstrate the competence that they have. Um, you know, it, it started for me early one uh, Saturday morning, I would zipped into the grocery store to get something. And there was a gentleman standing in front of the ready ice maker, you know, these ice machines are in every grocery store in the country. And he had the lid off of it and was standing back using his mobile phone to take a picture of the control panel. And that really, that I, I understood immediately what was happening, uh, but I checked. I said, what, what are you doing over there? You know, it was like 730 in the morning. And, and he said, well, I'm, I'm a mechanic and I work uh, on this contract for Ready Ice Makers and I'm using the Ready Ice app. And that was the key in the lock because I had been hearing stories about failure of assets, the difficulty of troubleshooting in the Alaskan context. Alaska has 13% of the world's microgrids, but most importantly, the longest operating experience with microgrids. I always cite the Rural Electrification Act of the 1920s, which is what enabled power to spread across our country. And as Alaska was a territory and then became a state, all of these 200 indigenous Alaska Native communities needed power to comply with the Rural Electrification Act. And so today, microgrid is a sexy term of art. Uh, in the North, we just tend to think of it as the good old diesel powerhouse. Um, but of course, we also see microgrids in remote mining activity, of course, oil field activity. Um, and so as we were helping to solve a problem where in, in indigenous native communities, there was a need for maintenance assistance, um, that was really our home market. And in fact, we co-developed the software with 30 Alaska native power plant operators, these microgrid operators um, in the in the spring and summer of 2018, got their feedback, asked them what they liked, what they didn't like. One of my favorite examples is in a small community called Birch Creek that, that basically has um, very limited internet. It blows in and out. Um, and our operator there was somewhat trained. I think he'd attended a two week course on looking after his microgrid. And we said, okay, whichever, you know, whoever in the 60 Hertz pilot can do the most number of maintenance logs over a month will send a 60 Hertz sweatshirt. And it was going to be Vincent. Vincent, I think he did three logs a day, steady Eddie, and um, uh, and was able to upload them all via our prototype app, uh, including photos and documentation of the maintenance work he was doing. And this was so important for us because the the narrative had been that there wasn't a motive to be responsible for the power assets. The narrative had been that people just couldn't couldn't keep up with the maintenance. And intuitively that we did not think that was correct. Tanya and I did not find that accurate. And so this pilot in that initial month really demonstrated not only with Vincent, but with a number of other operators, the real competence and desire to be responsible for the assets. And that's what our software unlocked was visibility on that competence. Yeah, I I really like that story because it is fascinating to think about coming from a, a Texas perspective, still still citing that winter storm from February mm-hmm. in 2021 and pointing out the the lack of ownership, the lack of I, I guess you could say the lack of competence in having a a grid that is reliable and resilient. And when you're talking about microgrids, you could have one, maybe maybe you have one backup power source, maybe you're lucky and you have three backup power sources, but it is so important to make sure that that is continually operating because 
you are kind of off on your own. And that is that is your source of power. And that is ultimately what's going to provide provide for all of those other aspects that we utilize the electricity for. So with that, I want to make sure we've got a understanding and a baseline for the audience. Where, where I guess there's a few different steps in the process of, I guess, taking care of a microgrid. I, I could see there's monitoring, maintenance, management, and, and repair, restoration, all of these different aspects to keeping that microgrid running. Where exactly does energy management systems or really where does 60 hertz fit into into the microgrid space? Sure. Well, I appreciate this question because it's something that we clarify often. Um, some of your listeners may have a, a crystal clear understanding of what maintenance software or field service software is. For many others of us energy practitioners broadly, we tend to collude terms. And so we talk about operations and maintenance, or you'll ask if you have an O&M plan, um, but we really see it composed of, of multiple steps. So partners to 60 Hertz would provide SCADA, would provide um, uh, monitoring or control systems. This often looks like um, a piece of connected hardware with telemetry, providing real-time or near-real-time readings um, based on sensed data or a machine's performance. It's the automatic uh, data acquisition and control that, that we're talking about there. That's not 60 hertz. That's not what we do. What we do is the following step. So you may have a network operations center, which is you know, staffed with tons of people and lots of large monitors, or your network operations center may be uh, a guy in a laptop with multiple tabs open. But in any event, the data that those formal or informal knocks are gathering what do you do with it next? So let's say we have an issue of high engine temperature or a battery that's fallen offline or, you know, a host of, of issues that will come in through the monitoring SCADA control platform. 60 Hertz helps take action, human action on what happens next. If you have vermin that have chewed through cabling, if the lightning has struck a solar array, if um, the, 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 the surround, the fence to any of our energy assets has been penetrated or vandalized, um, if a, an inverter has to be replaced, these are all activities in the field that only a human can do. And so what 60 Hertz governs is um, creating a work order and processing that preventative maintenance activity or corrective action or trouble troubleshooting that your field technician will take. We do that from a, a scheduling engine within, within our cloud-based maintenance manager dashboard, as well as then the mobile app um, for a field technician. So, so far from being an advertisement for, for 60 Hertz here, what we're really trying to raise awareness on is just the need for both the control and monitoring side, as well as maintenance, that there is often um, a, a misperception in the market that as long as we have control and monitoring on an asset, that that fairly well composes a maintenance program. But um, I, I lovingly like to say that's kind of a fantasy that an investor or somebody who only sits behind a desk would entertain, because if you've had, had any experience in the field, if your hands have ever been dirty, then we all know that's not really true. And there's a lot of um, unexpected uh, activity, whether because of the weather or <laughs> these assets are outside, um, that, that things happen, need to be fixed. And so ours is a system to document that. Hmm. That makes more sense to put into context where 60 hertz fits in. It has me thinking, though, what is kind of the current industry standard or what did you see as you were developing the the software? What is the current way of managing maintenance? Because I would imagine you've, you're getting this data or in some scenarios there is no data. And so you have to have some type of maintenance schedule or some type of management is that a is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I chuckle because when we first came to market, and um, you know, we're very disciplined about human centered design, product discovery, talking to our customers. We still invest a lot of time asking questions, watching people work in the field. The product is by no means done, quote unquote. It never will be. Um, 
60 Hertz was the first microgrid maintenance software that came to market. And uh, we believe we're the first DERS specific maintenance software today on the market. Slight nuance there. Let me just speak to it. Um, I started the company as 60 Hertz microgrids, and we realized that a microgrid is a type of distributed energy resource, a DER, um, which are proliferating, uh, whether you are working for a utility company or a developer or uh, an original equipment manufacturer. We're just seeing the rise of various kinds of distributed energy resources from EV charging stations to solar arrays to wind farms, um, on-site batteries, and then right back to home base being microgrids for resiliency um, uh, reasons. What we would identify and see the real growth in the market is looking at how how these assets are managed, that we think there's a real gap. This is where things are coming in the future, is to consolidate and economize how uh, how how our, our growing fleet of DERS are managed. What has shocked us, and you know, your your question was, what is the current standard for managing maintenance? It really depends. I would say um, in some areas we see a lot of paper documentation, either in a logbook that sometimes will be reviewed and looked after. Sometimes paper documentation of maintenance tasks are faxed to a central headquarters or photo photo taken and texted to central headquarters. Um, but this is pretty low fi It's low fidelity and you're losing a lot of data in the midst of that, let alone the ability to query, understand consistent failure rates, understand the um, mean time to resolution, MTTR, uh, that, that would be important in understanding your cost savings and also for budgeting for future procurement decisions. These are all the insights, examples of some of the insights that a maintenance software like ours can provide. Um, we also see a fair amount of text messaging, WhatsApp, Excel. If, if a company has graduated from paper-based maintenance record keeping, then sometimes they move on to Excel and a master fleet database and then just a lot of texting. But where we believe the uh, clean energy sector in particular really needs to go and needs some maturation would be in using more of a digital tool. Larger enterprises, we'll see, uh, we'll see some of that. And then people are, are shoehorning themselves into standard um, CMMS tools on the market that may be more designed for commercial office buildings. But, uh, you know, a CMMS like ours that is really specifically focused on new energy assets, there's a huge difference. Um, again, not a sales pitch necessarily for 60 hertz, but there, there are some pieces that are missing when we simply get an off-the-shelf um, maintenance solution. The most important thing, of course, you know, the bottom line, our message is let's just be sure we're documenting the maintenance. Let's say we're, we're recording it so that these analytics can be derived for future productivity of the asset. The, the big concern is that we are placing multi-million dollar expensive assets into service and not getting their full useful life. There are a variety of reasons why this may be taking place, but without a maintenance tool to document it, um, the, the sector will shrug its shoulders in a decade and say, yeah, bummer, we had to replace everything twice as fast as we thought. And, and that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, as you're explaining it, it, it reminds me of, well, I, I think about something like my own car's maintenance. And for my car, there's a light, it turns on, it tells me I need to change the oil. I can go out buy the equipment, the oil, the oil filter, I can go change the oil just fine. Pretty manageable. Sometimes it happens in an inopportune time frame. Maybe I don't have a next weekend available for three months, but, but I can still do it. And for one car, it makes sense. It's pretty easy. But as you're talking about scaling up to fleets of vehicles or I just think about even a home solar array where you probably have 10 solar panels and each one of those has three or four different parts that may fail, that may need replacing, and then trying to scale up to a commercial size scale. It, I can see the value there of a, of a management software. And especially as we're talking about renewables, because there are, it seems like there's a lot more moving parts because the energy density is is lower than your typical diesel generator or your typical natural gas fired uh, genset. 
Yeah, Joe, I'm really glad you're bringing up scale because that's that's really when maintenance tools become non-negotiable. When we hit a threshold of, of a fleet size where, where it's certainly more than can be efficiently managed without something slipping through the gaps. Um, uh, you know, we, we often think it's as long as the fleet is above 10 to 15 assets, that's when you're going to need a tool uh, of some sort. I can't help but hearken back to your reference to the ice storm in February of of, uh, of 2021 in Texas and how catastrophic that was. And in fact, it, um, it prompts me to give a shout out to a, a colleague and, and, and Rural Electric Cooperative, Tri-County Electric in Texas, that proactively, perhaps like many others across the state or across our country, are thinking, what can we do on the customer side um, to provide a layer of resiliency even at the household level? Uh, Tri-County has a contract with Generac to provide generators um, to many of their residential customers. I think they're rolling out the pilot starting early next year, but it poses a really interesting question. Super well-intentioned. We know they'll be successful, but what happens when the customer, the residential customer, notices that there's an issue with their generator or five years down the road, those generators need maintenance, uh, routine maintenance? How will they look after and document and schedule all of that activity? It's a conversation that that we are, are posing to manufacturers like Generac to say, okay, uh, great, we all sell our assets under the assumption that they won't need much maintenance. The reality is we all know they do. So how do we, number one, empower the customer to look after some of those tasks themselves? Number two, work with our utilities um, to better deploy some of their on-staff resources like linemen who could make some of these uh, maintenance changes and fixes on their own. Um, and then how does the, the original equipment manufacturer, the OEM, play well with all of the, you know, these increasingly um, crowded spaces. Uh, we like to think of microgrids and resilient power. It's a multi-stakeholder party. There are a lot of people. When we talk about single source generation, as we have all used for decades, um, you've got one operator and one person to deal with. But the fundamental fact, often not discussed in energy transition, is that it is diverse. And so you'll have a lot of assets, a lot of people with a financial interest in the asset or other stakeholders. Maybe it's the school district. We are evolving a tool that we think reflects the variety of those needs um, because of reporting differences, because of the need to avoid reconnaissance trips. There's just there's a lot of yarn <laughs> to untangle when we talk about multi-stakeholder assets. And, uh, and that's the really interesting component for, for a company like ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That really is interesting to think about the different aspects and and I haven't really ever thought about just how diverse and how how expansive the energy transition is going to be and already is and with distributed energy and how many different stakeholders and players are all involved. One thing that that you touched on was that aspect of how are each of those individuals going to be able to keep up to date with the maintenance and and be taking care of that personal equipment they have it had me thinking about a story and basically it's right now the way that things go me with my car and field hands out in the oil field if you drive that car every single day or if you are out there on your on your maintenance route and you're checking on wells every single day, you get in tune with that. So I've heard stories of, of guys who can park at the front of a lease at a front of a lease gate with their truck running and be able to tell you if there's something wrong with a well and with its pump jack. And and that's the same with me. Like when I get in my car and I start driving and I'm like, oh, this feels a little, I say squishy. And typically that means the one of the tires is low on air. And depending on how the corners are going, I can feel which one. But I can't do that in my wife's car. So it just has me thinking, do you have that same thing in in this uh 
in renewable energy, I would imagine in something like a solar farm, you don't have the moving parts. You don't have the same cues that I would expect you to have in in something like the diesel generators that you see in in rural Alaska. Yeah, Joe, it's a good it's a good question. And and what you're getting at to me is mastery, the sense of mastery and the mastery that comes from ours in the field, growing familiar with with an asset, you know, we would make ex- make an extension even to 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 a home cook or a gourmet home cook that that knows the feel of her favorite pots and pans. And um, that's something that I, I really cherish and want to elevate is how in the maintenance profession um, that someone perhaps in overalls or, you know, that you can just tell by looking at their hands that they they use their hands as tools um, that there is an often overlooked know-how, or I should say underappreciated know-how that lies within our field technicians. Um, I, I was once told that America is losing this domain expertise, but that some of the last bastions of the really experienced practical field knowledge may lie in farming communities, um, perhaps in the Midwest, and also in indigenous, um, you know, Alaska Native, First Nation, Native American communities. Um, I, I would assume that it extends beyond that, but places that still revere and value uh, the intuitive knowledge that comes from people that are deeply familiar um, with, with working in the field. So uh, it also, I, I had the same question, you know, we have the sense that solar is a latent sleepy asset. I think from a safety standpoint, in fact, that's also a risk because it's a quiet asset. We don't hear things and we don't see things moving. And nonetheless, it's immensely electrified. I mean, this the, a solar array is a very dangerous object. We just never consider it that way. As we've done our human-centered design, more than 300 hours, as I mentioned, of of watching people work in the field, as well as numerous um, interviews, we we hear stories, and and then you know people whip out a phone and want to show you one of the worst examples of you know vegetation management gone awry, or a solar field that had been completely neglected, and um, an, an array that was flooded, and conduit that that had stopped working, um, a tree that had grown straight through a panel um, because no one had been to the site for years. I am hopeful that we are closing that decade, that through active management, through larger arrays, through different pricing structures um, under PPAs, that that I think that really is behind us. Every every technology has maintenance fails. It just depends on, on what we're talking about. I mean, the number of diesel generators that have uh, missed an oil change uh, probably far outnumber solar arrays with, with vegetation management issues. But I think that really gets at the, the practical knowledge that lies with our field technicians and that is so important to capture, to help impart to the next generation. Um, Just as we understand that utility staff on a whole uh, is an aging population. Many people that work for a utility today will retire in the next 10 to 15 years. The vast majority believe it's 65%. And so how are we going to replace that knowledge, not only with our utility partners, but um, field hands in general? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, it is one of those things that is almost, almost f- fear inducing to think about having all of that knowledge leaving the workforce. And I guess that's one of the really cool things about developing an app and being able to have that app in your hand to see and feel and, and understand when you need to be doing some of that maintenance. I think the, I think a follow-up question to that is, what are some of the ways, or are there some ways that you are trying to incorporate that mastery aspect into the app? Is that something where you are developing machine learning on top of it that says, okay, we can maybe extend the the distance or the time for that vegetation maintenance or that time between oil changes? Or is it really just trying to be as early and often and preventative as possible? Mm, thanks for the question, because I think, um, yeah, there, there are so many places for software to provide that continuity of operations, um, 
best practice, standard operating procedures, queuing work, uh, illustrating how a colleague may have solved a problem previously, even a decade earlier. Um, that that's that's the stuff that you know that's really interesting to us. You say machine learning, and um, you know I think there's there's really a lot of discussion in the tech community right now, um, and even among investors. For for a long time, you said big data, and you'd get a big check. I think the investor community is today kind of wising up to that, that a big data play um, 15 years on, we're recognizing there may not be as much to that story or it's about what maybe more creatively we do with that, but you're not going to monetize that big data. Similarly, predictive maintenance, that's one that we hear a lot about and I think for a long time similarly got you a big check. Investors we're talking to, I think, have a clearer eyed rationale that making good on those algorithms and actually making them productive can be challenging. Um, I think about colleagues like WellAware in in the oil and gas space that have you know an interest in moving toward energy transition. You know, founders that we look up to. Um, what we all know is that weeding out the noise from an alarm and alert. Um, even in the predictive sense, is really challenging. It's really challenging to pull off. And so as a result, if you don't execute that well, the beleaguered operations director is being hounded and pinged by text messages and emails that within the first 12 hours have become such a nuisance he no longer hears it. And, you know, where we instead are devoting our energy and intention uh, are in multi-layer data sets. What we think is more interesting is how you help the human continue to think for himself and make good decisions in the field. Some examples of this work, um, we have a new initiative thanks to a NOAA SBIR grant about weather-informed maintenance using satellite data. We have um, ideas about how we can better integrate with a variety of SCADA and monitoring control systems so that we can fire smarter work orders that still a human will approve and document. And uh, on the solar side, working with um, Amicus O&M Cooperative, which has really written the book about solar maintenance. I think about a wonderful leader like Amanda Bybee and what she's doing for the solar community and our work with Amicus to bring forward best practice standard operating procedures when it comes to solar assets, be they commercial and industrial or solar garden, community scale, right up to utility scale solar assets. So what's important to 60 Hertz and our vantage on the market is how we continue to invest in the human, that we are not looking for pathways to operate around or get the human out of the way, but really we're doubling down on the power of the human, the value of the human, and what we can do to help him or her make better decisions at site or in their planning. I like that. And that is absolutely key to understanding, maintaining, and as we talked about way at the beginning, taking ownership of your assets. If if you don't have that personal connection and that, I guess, the, the ability or the, yeah, I, I think ability is a good word. The ability to make the decisions for your asset then ultimately you have become one cog in the entire industrial process. And at that point, you just, at least for me, I would not feel the same ownership and the same, the same satisfaction in seeing the whole operation operating smoothly. Yeah, yeah, 100%, especially in this current climate of incredible transaction in our workforce. Um, the, the folks duration at a job is even shorter than it ever has been. It's more, the wages are more and more competitive. Um, I think that employers will have to start making up the difference, even in field work, um, with, with, by, by empowering their people to, to bring their fuller selves to the job, which means their, their fuller capacity, let the talent show, not just to be someone who's, who's manually turning a crank. Yep. Well, with that, I do want to, I think the human aspect is very, very important, but there's also the analytic side. And I want to talk about really the the value here of of the maintenance. Because in my mind, I we all know that non-productive time is bad. But when I think about, say, a, a solar array of 100 solar panels, if there's one that isn't operating for a little while, 
I would imagine that's not that big of a deal. And I guess the question is, is that right? How much <laughs> of a how much of an impact is one bad solar array or you're, one bad solar panel? Yeah, yeah. You know, module by module. No, you're right. The, especially if we're well, if you have, if you only have a, a two panel system, then then yes, that would be a bigger problem. But uh, at the larger scale that that many of your listeners would care about a single module? No. I mean, naturally that depends on the kinds of um, inverter and other balance of system choices that are there. Um, We have a lot of solar trackers in the field. So these are sunflower-like modules posted on, um, you know, modest sized tower of sorts that that turn and track the sun. If your tracker is down, you are losing a lot of um, generation potential. Maybe just to put some numbers at it, um, when we look at microgrids, be they at a mine or uh, in other industrial activity, um, the lifetime and uptime of this asset can ap- affect the project, uh, the project's internal rate of return by at least 3% over a 20-year time frame. Um, we know, again, back to solar trackers, uh, that, that, that an unexpected maintenance event, whatever the cause, um, is often what most torpedoes a project's return on investment uh, in the solar sector. There's been great research by TUV Rhineland out of Germany uh, on this and uh, other reports substantiated by NREL in our country. Um, and then firms that we look to like Kilowatt Analytics that published their annual state of solar report indicating the failure rate for inverters in the field. This is what's really got the hair standing up on the back of my neck, um, that we have a lot of inverter companies that are new to market and are not surviving even their 10-year expected useful life, let alone a several-year warranty period. Um, 73% of work orders in the field are for warranties when it's at a solar asset. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, inverters, it's, it's a power electronics component fundamentally. And in many cases, we're hearing uh, serv- solar service companies simply decide to swap out the inverter as opposed to trying to troubleshoot or fix it. Naturally, that depends on how big it is, the type, et cetera, um, but just generally speaking. So, you know, we even we had another customer, I don't think they'd mind uh, my sharing, um, anonymously had offered a very generous warranty period such that if a site was offline for two weeks, they would remunerate their customer and pay them back. And um, because of supply chain issues, because of lack of visibility on their assets prior to working with 60 hertz, they had numerous events that uh, they had to pay thousands of dollars back to customer owners for the sites being offline for up to three weeks. So it, it, it really is it really is an area of financial loss, particularly at scale when we see this volume of battery and solar systems going in the field. Um, I mean, just to, to point some numbers to it, DNV's energy transition outlook says over the next 30 years, we'll see utility scale capacity for, for storage growing 160%, 7.3 terawatts of power. I mean, this is, this is a lot of activity happening in in the next decades and what we do to ensure that these assets remain functional, optimized and revenue generating is, is going to be determinant of our success or failure from a climate standpoint, let alone from a business model standpoint for all of these assets in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess one solar panel, not that big of a deal, but one failure event, especially an unexpected one, can ultimately be a a big problem. And if it is one failure event that happens to be a batch of of pieces that all came from the same manufacturer and installed at the same time, that can that can tank a company. It can. We've seen that. We have seen that. Or where the warranty reserve is insufficiently backed for a, a, a new original equipment manufacturer, there just <clears throat> there can be some some real issues here. Hmm. So the other the other more analytical question I'm curious about is with all of the maintenance management, do you have any type of metrics on the environmental footprint? Really, the the environmental 
reduction or greenhouse gas emission reduction and just improvement of the overall footprint of a resource? You know, it's, it's, it's a great question. It's also, it can be challenging in the maintenance sector to prove a negative. So we are, of course, always looking at kilowatt hours that a, a, a microgrid or a solar asset can generate. If it's a pure solar battery asset, if there's a diesel backup, how much is the diesel on? Um, this is an issue across the Arctic, understanding higher renewable penetration um, microgrids, wherein diesel remains a consistent backup component. Um, you know, even penetrating beyond 50% is, is, we're not seeing that to a great or widespread degree um, uh, across the Arctic. Now, the operating conditions are, are more unusual than for what many of you users would be would be looking at. Um, but, but back to, you know, proving the negative, the challenge is um, quantifying the downtime and the, the the average time to replace. So we can we can I, of course identify how many um, what the greenhouse gas offset would be from a project over its lifetime. Where I think the analysis needs to go much further is in understanding if that um, if that solar array is achieving. Um, 90% of budget or 70% of budget. And if it is, if we're getting the full useful life, there's some alarming anecdotal research that in certain cases, some solar modules may not be, uh, well, let me say it differently, that certain solar modules are degrading faster than analysis had predicted, meaning that they're losing their generation capacity a little faster than predicted. Um, I think that, that that's too specific an anecdote to index for our whole sector. It could be depending on where the panels are manufactured. Um, I'll probably get a call from SIA shortly after this podcast airs, co- correcting all this. But from a maintenance standpoint, this is where you know the, those of us that study failure, that are in the market helping to remedy failure, that want to avoid this black eye, for the clean energy sector, I think we do need to have some more time and resources devoted to really quantify uptime, um, replacement time, warranty issues, um, ju- just as as more mature energy sectors have over their over their lifespans as well. Yeah, and I could see that as being a a perfect point for some type of maintenance management software, or where sixty hertz would very clearly fit into the future as we have more distributed energy resources, as we are trying to have more of that uptime. And as you pointed out earlier, the the analytic side of it and understanding when and how and what is being done to to do the predictive maintenance and also to keep these things running. I think that is that is all learning from the from the data that you're getting and something that potentially hasn't been done and has been harder to go back and look at and analyze but in a in a software program it should be a little bit more clear where do you see 60 hertz in in this future of distributed energy Oh, yeah, well, you heard me excitedly jumping in, but that, that is something that, that, that we're keen to help make visible via dashboards for our customers. Um, I'll take it from the diesel side and move forward. You know, when a site has underperformance of a diesel generator, um, let's take some numbers by example, a gen set should be optimized at 13 to 15 kilowatt hours per gallon. If that slips by half, that's in a more exaggerated case, or even by a third, and goes unnoticed by an operations director for even a month, that can yield almost $5,600 a month in excess diesel spend. Um, and, uh, you know, annualized over the life of a single prime power gen set, uh, over a year of a single prime power gen set, that could be, that could be $60,000. And, you know, that's at last year's diesel prices, let alone where we are today. So so understanding your key performance metrics like kilowatt hours per gallon, just just uh, can't, can't avoid it. 
Same thing when we get to, to solar is understanding what our budget to actual was of kilowatt hours currently being produced on, on a 30-day look-back period versus that which was forecasted. And can we can we illustrate, therefore, to our customers what their, what their actual operational efficiencies are in a moment-by-moment basis? No question, someone's inverter and their financial model can get to that. But is a, a is it a, is it a, is it a number that can be easily tracked and evaluated by the ops team? Um, because those are those micro indicators of, of operational health. Um, same thing with with even uh, costs like reconnaissance trips to understand why a site is offline. If you're getting nuisance alarms. Often our solar uh, our solar lo- generation locations are in remote areas, particularly as we're getting to larger and larger footprints. Um, uh, as we look across the desert southwest and see gigawatt scale projects, and this will not be around the corner from headquarters. This is going to demand a skilled technician, several hours of driving time to reach, and the reconnaissance trip cost alone is a place to look at savings. Um, particularly when we're undergoing a maintenance planning effort. Yep, absolutely. And I think that that makes so much sense. And, and ultimately, just having that forethought based on the data is, is so important. With that, I want to transition into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. The first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh, Joe, I mean, I don't know how I could even pick one. I, I really do love to read. Running a startup is um, fairly full-time and stressful. I have a family, and so reading is is my haven, and I love to, to, to break out as much time as I can for this. So I'm not going to give you just one book, but um, – uh, uh, a great uh, a great tome in the canon of startup culture is the hard thing about hard things and even if you're not working for a startup i think it's really phenomenal business advice for running any company or any initiative in terms of hr management and product and um, turnaround stories and i've taken a lot of heart from the hard thing about hard things um, because i live in alaska and anchorage i'm also reading right now arctic dreams by Barry Lopez, which is just a, a book of poetry. Well, it's 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 uh, it's not, but it's so beautifully written. And then, if there are any parents listening, I have just been introduced to Hunt, Gather, and Parent, and it's um, I don't mean to exaggerate, but it's felt fairly life changing just in terms of how we raise polite, kind, capable children, um, particularly coming from cultures like we are North American, European, that has such a premium on control over children. Um, And uh, (laughs) I think a lot of other outlying factors about the, the North American, European identity, when we look across the globe, um, what makes us tick really differs, according to this book and a lot of research about what makes other families work well and um, and people function well in society. I'm really concerned about where parts of our country, the politicization, division that we have. And so I want to think carefully about this in raising children um, so that we can bring forward people that um, are going to be contributing to great solutions. I like all those recommendations. I will have to add them to my list. And and I completely understand the the lack of ability to get into books in terms of time and and just having the ability to go and read. So these ones will they'll be on the list, hopefully not for too long, but <laughs> it may be a while. So the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Mm. Well, my money is on 2070 because I want to be here for it. I want to be alive for it. Um, and I also am a person of hope and a person of faith. And I think that as insurmountable as the climate situation is, we also see so many points of progress, so many examples of um, the the profitability of coming to climate neutral solutions. Um, again, back to politicization, I think a lot of the tools that are available that are debated in Congress 
um, have been challenging. Um, it's often cast as a zero sum sum game, and yet when we look at the market, when we look at where innovation is going, um, y- you know, here's a statistic that has given me a lot of heart. Um, there are various investor research blogs that, that I consult in creating pitch decks for 60 hertz and whatnot. In Q1 of this year, globally, there were more than 600 battery startup companies in the world. And when we think about the power of batteries to help shift energy, to focus obviously on, on how we move and store energy from uh, across time frames, whether it's short or long, um, that there are this many people globally working on a solution that will be instrumental in how we consume energy and how we're able to generate it. I have hope. Each of those founding teams at the 600 companies are backed by investors that believe in them, that are backed by so much initiative and drive and late night work to, to see their companies be successful. Um, there, there really is a lot of reason for hope. I think if we only look at the news or only look at, um, you know, the, 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 the latest congressional budget package or if Biden's climate bill will get through, it can be disheartening. But that's why my money is on the market and namely startups. Hmm. It's a very, very hopeful take on it. And that's absolutely a, an astounding number to think. 600 battery-specific startups that also have investors behind them. That is, it's fascinating to think about. And I, I really like that take that the the goal of of being here when we do reach net zero, because we're all working very hard towards that goal. I know there are subsidiary goals or maybe primary goals above net zero. The first being energy being able to give energy to, to uh, for you, rural Alaska and having reliable energy. And for me, it's geothermal energy for everybody. But absolutely reaching net zero during our lifetime would be very exciting and definitely a good long-term motivator. Hmm. So... The last question is actually now you get to ask me a question. Well, good, Joe, because I, I have I have several. So I, we'll see what you can, what you know, how you want to pack this in. But you get to talk to a lot of people that are thinking and working hard on the energy transition. And so my first question is, do you have, if you were a betting man, and there are a lot of racehorses out there, what technology do you think has the greatest potential to from a distributed energy resource perspective, which technology has the greatest potential to really proliferate globally, and and do you think will go forward? Ooh, that is a that's a hard question because distributed energy resources are. I do think that as we are discussing them and thinking about them. What I've learned from talking to all of these great minds is that we are not necessarily all thinking about them in the same way. When I think about virtual power plants and virtual PPAs or power purchase agreements, people have talked to me about having their entire house full of smart devices and those smart devices being able to be managed from from an off-site company who says, okay, we're going to turn your thermostat up. We're not going to heat your water today. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. That in itself is a distributed energy resource. And so from that regard, it that person doesn't care at all about generating green electricity for himself. He may not care at all about being net zero, but he can go to a software company or a an electric company who says we are going to give you cheaper electricity if you give us the the ability to do and control these appliances in your house and from that regard he is happy cuz he's saving money and he doesn't really see a difference in his life and so i think those i guess uh, that's a roundabout way 
of saying the companies who can find a way to to push everybody towards net zero without knowing it really it's going to be those companies that are that are probably software companies and probably the companies that make things like rooftop solar just super easy i think those are going to be the winners from a distributed energy standpoint yesterday i did hear the the comment that baseload is dead and i don't believe that so i think there is still value in baseload and even as you as you pointed out with a lot of these microgrids many of them have that diesel generation backup and that is ultimately going to still that's going to be there for for a while and i think that that there is an aspect there that isn't necessarily a distributed energy resource but it is still there is going to be that winner whoever can find a clean base load for me i would say that's geothermal and synthetic geothermal i think that is going to be another winner but not necessarily in the distributed energy space. Interesting, interesting. I love that quote. Baseload is dead. I mean, it's it's provocative, whether or not correct. But I I, I think that's interesting. Okay, can yes. I squeeze in one second question? Yeah, go for it. Okay, if you were the governor or a congressional representative from West Virginia and cared about climate. What would you advance that would help workers in your state be part of this of this energy transition at a profit and for a win? That is a very interested or very interesting and and a very pointed question and relevant question because as as we talk, if you're not aware, the Department of Energy, the U.S. Department of Energy, along with the Geothermal Technologies Office, is working on figuring out how to convert old mines into geothermal resources. And not just geothermal resources, but also looking at mines and mine tailings and mine waste for any type of of rare earth mining applications or and finding ways to basically i know it we haven't talked about clean coal in what seems like two decades but clean coal is still a a point of conversation and i think that that is another one of those aspects of is there a way to for lack of a better term inertly use coal is there a way to pull the resources we want out but not the carbon. So I think there are there are initiatives right now to actually increase the to retool mining communities to to revitalize the mining infrastructure and the mining towns that that we kind of built the US on and I think that if I was in West Virginia I would be pushing very hard for geothermal technologies. And I think that the NETL and West Virginia University, they're all doing a great job and they need, they can, they can always use more support. And I'm always, always happy to promote good teams that I think are doing a great job. Inspiring answer, Joe. That gives me a lot of food for thought. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Piper, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Oh, well, thanks so much for, for having me and the chance to talk about um, my work and that of my team and, and all of us at 60 Hertz, um, but specifically for for a view on how others um, can get involved in energy transition or profit from it. Um, and I wanted to just mention that if uh, a listener uh, finds 60 Hertz Energy on LinkedIn and uh, uh, responds to our posting about your show, uh, we'll send a present. All right. 
Sounds great. So everybody, you heard it. Go find 60 Hertz on LinkedIn and connect with them, interact, and keep promoting this podcast. Piper, thank you for joining me on this episode. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating, leave a review. As Piper said, share this episode with a friend. Doing these simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience and it'll help these technologies really change the world. If you want to hear more great energy stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon, mention OGGN, and they'll give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly industry mixers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.